of 1 Samuel. This morning, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 12 through the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. If you would now stand and give attention as we uh, read the inerrant, the infallible word of God. Please stand as you're able. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled the battle today, and he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there was also a great defeat among your people, among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the woman attending her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Please be seated. There's nothing quite as hard as waiting for news that you think will never come. Sometimes we're waiting for good news and that anticipation can be great. Or maybe we're waiting for a promotion or to hear that we got days off work. I remember when Luann and I were standing there waiting for the test results. When we found out that she was pregnant with Josiah, there was this sense that we knew something was true. But when it finally was confirmed, there was joy and happiness as we embraced each other. This is made all the harder when that news is bad, when there's a notion that the outcome will not be good. Perhaps you haven't been feeling well and you go to the doctor and the doctor doesn't like see something he sees and they run some tests and we're waiting for news that we're certain will not be good. Or perhaps maybe we hear that our business or place we work has been bought out and or they're gonna be doing downsizing and there's this fear that we might lose our job, but we have to wait until everything works itself out. The anticipation, the dread can be overwhelming. There are many occasions where waiting can lead to a heightened sense of emotion. We can be fearful, we can be dreadful, we can be joyful of what might come. Last time we looked at Samuel together, we saw this overwhelming defeat of Israel 
at the hands of the Philistines. Some 30,000 soldiers of Israel were killed. The ark was lost. Eli's sons had been killed. But here is Eli with anticipation, waiting, fearfully waiting for news from the battlefield. And along comes a man from Benjamin, Benjamin, a Benjamite, torn and tattered as he returns from the battlefield. And that's what we're going to consider today as we see three things. The death of Eli, the loss of glory, and the hope of Emmanuel. The death of Eli, the loss of glory, and the hope of Emmanuel. Let's begin by looking at the death of Eli. Once again, as we come to our text, as is often the case with Eli, we see that Eli is not where he should be. He is the high priest. He is in charge of the ark. Uh, but the ark has gone out, and he is still in Shiloh. He's sitting there waiting. When instead he should have been standing or acting or at the very least forbidding them to take the ark into battle. But instead he sits there and he trembles with fear. Why is he fearful of the outcome? I think there's two reasonable answers that we could give to this question. First, uh, we have to remember that Eli has now received two prophecies foretelling the death of his sons in, in Samuel 2. 22, there was this unknown, or excuse me, unnamed man of God who came and prophesied and told him that both his sons would die on the same day. This was later confirmed by the prophecy of Samuel after God spoke to Samuel at night. And now his two sons are gone on a day of battle, and he knows what has been said. That's one possible reason. Maybe some of that is there. The second is that he would have known that the ark should only go forth by the command of God. I think this is actually the one that has more weight to it, while the other one might be true. We see here that in our text that Eli's reactions were always to the ark, not his sons. The people were acting in contrast to God's word. They were not acting in obedience. They had taken forth the ark as a talisman of what they thought would bring them victory. They weren't living as the true people of God. And we see in our text that this Benjamite brings terrible news. He says, we've, we've taken a great defeat. Your sons are dead. The ark has been captured. It was with the news of the loss of the ark that the story of Eli comes to a close. It says two things about Eli. It says, if we're being a little less kind, he was fat and old. That's the reality of it. He fell over backwards in shock. He basically passed out. And as he fell, he broke his neck. And thus comes to an end the time of Judges. He was the last judge. He had been judging for 40 years. And the place where God dwelled has now been removed. Eli's legacy is one of failure and loss. And we don't know how Eli started, right? Maybe he started and he was doing things well. We don't know. We don't know where Eli went wrong. Or if things were always wrong. 
But what we do know is that failure often comes with one bad decision at a time. Paul in Galatians says it this way, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows. That will he also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows from his spirit, or excuse me, from the spirit, will from the spirit reap eternal life. Now what Paul is teaching us is that what we sow, we indeed reap. Eli had reaped what he had sown. It's a basic principle of life. Uh, of course, Paul uses this agricultural terms to teach us this, but it is very, it is very a, a practical lesson that we all learn at one or another. You will deal with the consequences of the way that you act. Your habits, your character will flow from your belief. This is why Paul warns us in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We must be seeking the renewal of our, our mind. This is what Eli had failed to do. He had continued to be this tragic figure. He's the high priest of the Lord. He's the last judge of Israel. And we should expect more from him. But he does not proactively protect the honor and glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord had been taken from Israel, but it would not be forever. And the wonderful truth is that we still have that glory today. Even in the hardest moments of our life, even in our greatest sins, we have the glory of the Lord. And we do this by holding, we, we take claim of this, I should say, by holding fast to his word. Confessing him as Lord. But for Israel at this time, the ark coming into the presence or the possession, I should say, of Israel's enemies was a signal of divine punishment. God was removing his protection from the people. It is a sign that he has used throughout the Old Testament. It's not even the greatest sign. We see in Ezekiel when Babylon is breathing down the necks of Israel. It says this, Ezekiel 10, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before the eyes, before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. Ezekiel goes on to say that Ichabod would be written over the doomed walls of the city. God in his judgment will remove his glory from his people. This is not, again, just an Old Testament concept. It's also a New Testament concept. We see this in the book of Revelations, the seven letters to the seven churches, and there's these warnings. If you do not persist, I will remove your lampstand. What are we to make of all this? Well, this is the universal truth, the truth that it has not changed. God is angered by false and wrong worship committed by his people. Again, we remember Eli's sons, they stole the offering. They introduced sexual sins into God's place of worship. Worship. Isaiah says it this way, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me as a commandment taught by men. We are meant to be warned by this. 
even in Jeremiah's day, he hearkens back to this warning. In Jeremiah 7, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. There's this warning. What will happen at Shiloh will happen to you. And sadly, this is something that we see in the church today. Mainline churches over the years have done this very thing. Back in 1924, this is before even the PCA existed by a good 50-something years. Um, when you still had the northern and southern churches, most churches were still divided along, uh, along the north-south lines from the Civil War. But there was something in 1924 that was signed in the Presbyterian mainline denomination called the Auburn Affirmations. And in essence, the Auburn Affirmation said this, no longer would ministers in the Presbyterian church have to believe in the inerrancy of scripture. No longer would they have to believe in the virgin birth. No longer would they have to believe in the substitutionary atonement. No longer would they have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And no longer would they have to believe in the authenticity of Christ's miracles. There was this moment, even coming on 100 years ago, right? 1924, we're about to, not several years away from 2024, where the mainline denominations were in essence saying, we're no longer holding, you don't have to hold to these fundamental truths of the Bible. And instead, they began to embrace secular humanism in the place of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this. How many towns have you ever gone in? And, and I've seen, you might go to, to some of these larger cities and some of the best places that you can go eat are in old churches. Because guess what? The churches aren't there anymore. They become restaurants. Or they're vacant and empty. Because the glory of Lord has departed. Even still today, we should be worried about the church. A 2002 Baptist survey said that 88% of evangelical children abandoned the church at age 18. 88% of our children abandoned the church at age 18. That's eight out of every 10 in essence, about eight, more than eight out of every 10 will leave the church after they're 18. It is urgent that we repent of our sins, that we return to biblical truth, that we again have a burning passion for Christ and his gospel. Eli lays on the ground with his neck broken. His daughter is dead from giving birth. His sons are dead and his grandson is a pronouncement of judgment upon the people. Where is the glory? There is no glory left in Israel. And all of this is a great discouraging scene filled with warnings that we have to pay attention to. We cannot conform our faith to the desires of this world. We have to worship in accordance with God who has revealed himself to us. 
It's interesting. It came up this week. Jordan and I were talking about in the PCA. I never use this term. Something to get bogged down in because the PCA likes to get bogged down in things. Uh, the regulative principle of worship. It's something that we hold to. It's a question that we ask when men come into our denomination. Do you believe in the regulative principle of worship? So what does that mean? What is the regulative principle of worship? Well, all it says is this, that the Bible regulates how we worship. We do not get to worship God however we want to worship God. He tells us how we're to worship him. And so the Bible becomes our instruction for worship. To know how to worship God, we must read his word. We must understand how he would have us approach him. And then we must approach him in that fashion. Sometimes I fear that evangelical churches do not have the proper reverence for the worship of God that they should. At best, it has led to bad practices. At worst, it has led to a worship that is not pleasing to God. Now, you may be sitting there today and saying, Daniel, this sermon's a real bummer. Kind of is. You got this guy who was the high priest in Israel. He's the one who should have everything figured out. By the way, that's a great warning. Don't put your pastors on pedestals. Just don't, because they'll probably fall and break their neck. But um, <laughs> thank you. I got a little chuckle from, from Jordan. Um, here we have Eli who's fallen and died. We have his sons are dead. We have his daughter-in-law who's dead. Where's the hope in this? What are we to do? And we close with this, this last point. And that is the hope of Emmanuel. And the question becomes this. Once the glory of the Lord has departed Israel, how can it be restored? Again, we're going to look at some Old Testament passages to see the answer to this. Zechariah 1.3, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I don't know if it gets much clearer than that. How is the glory of the Lord restored to the people? As we return to him, he returns to us. God's purpose in withdrawing his glory is always the same. And that is the restoration of his people. It's something we talk about uh, this morning, if you were here and you got to hear my riveting uh, Sunday school class. I know it was so exciting and full of great information. Uh, you will have heard me mention our Book of Church order. And one of the things our Book of Church order tells us is, how we do discipline in the church and why we do discipline in the church. And one of the main reasons, first, is the glory of God. Second, is the reclamation of sinners. We do disciplines in order that, not so that we can simply say, hey, you're no good, you need to get out of here and don't come back. That's not why we do church discipline. If that's why we're doing church discipline, then we're doing something wrong. The point of church discipline is to say, you need restoration. It's to draw people back Again, Jeremiah and Jeremiah 29. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. 
And we'll see, Israel will suffer under this punishment for 20 years. This is what 1 Samuel 7 tells us. From the day of the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. For 20 years they lament. That's a long time, isn't it? In 20 years, I'll be 63. That's a good long while. It's actually one, maybe one of the shorter periods in Israel's history. But does this at any time ever describe us? That we have given up the glory of the Lord in, in favor of something more or different, I should say. Then we should seek God with all our heart. The wonderful news of the gospel and I, I took this from a commentator, but I could not help, it's so good, that Ichabod is replaced with Emmanuel. Ichabod is replaced with Emmanuel. Ichabod that says, where is the glory, or there is no glory, is replaced with Emmanuel, that is God with us, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as one of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Christ, the glory of the Lord comes and dwells in his people and with his people. Yet the world despised him. They put him to death on the cross. And we see a picture of this on the cross as Jesus hung there and darkness comes over the land as he suffers the wrath of God and then eventually is put to death. But his presence was not taken away forever. Three days later, he rose again from the grave. And he brings eternal life to all those who would believe in him. We should rightly lament when the glory of God is taken and removed because of sins. But our sins do not cry Ichabod. They cry Emmanuel. Paul in 2 Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's the problem with the Old Testament system. It was flawed in its nature. The presence of God was with man, but it was not in man. But in Jesus Christ, that glory, that presence is no longer just with man. It is in man. God has sent to us a herald of his victory over sin. So that we don't have to fear the Benjamite coming and giving us terrible news. Instead, we have the wonderful, joyful news of the gospel that we who are in Christ have his glory indwelling in us by the power of Jesus. And then we get to go forth as those who are bearers of this good news. We don't bring a terrible news. We bring a joyful news of Jesus and his saving blood. And would it be said of us, as it is said in Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What a wonderful thing it is that we can claim Emmanuel, God, with us. 
Because this herald is not, no one less than Jesus himself. Who comes into our hearts. Who cries out to us. Who calls to us by the all-redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. Who bids us come and hear. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is any number of reasons why you might lament over your sins. But remember, if you are in Christ, while you should continue to lament your sins, take heart and know that the dwelling place of God is in you. That Jesus Christ, through his spirit, now dwells in you. And there is no fear that that presence will be taken. For we know he who has begun that good work in you will see it to its completion. Therefore, live after him. Worship him as he has called you to do so. Stop worshiping self. Stop worshiping the things of this world Come in humble reliance upon the one who has saved you to the uttermost. My encouragement to you today and all the discouragement of this section is Emmanuel himself. The death of Eli was tragic. It marked the end of an era. It was an evidence of a life not lived boldly for God. It is the condition of all those who continue to remain apart from him. That the glory of the Lord is removed. That his presence is taken. That his blessing and favor are removed. And there are times where we might feel that. But we must come in repentance and faith and know the hope of Emmanuel, God with us. That we no longer have to fear the loss of that presence. But that Christ has come as the perfect sacrifice, as the perfect high priest. And he has made his dwelling place in us. It is the wonderful, the beautiful truth that we are about to proclaim in this table. That Jesus, the Savior of the world, is in us. As we come in faith and repentance to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice in your truth. We rejoice in your mercies, which are new each morning, O oh Lord, we ask and pray that you would renew us by the power of your word and that we would know that you are dwelling in us. We ask and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you please stand with me as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table as we sing the first two verses of Great is Thy Faithfulness. <laughs>